The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So we are gathered here today on Pentecost, and our, our key text that we are going to focus on is uh, the one that Petra read from Acts chapter 2. And there's a part of me that after the reading of, of all those lectionary texts, I think, I have nothing left to do. They're such good passages, so full of encouragement, but I've spent a lot of work on this sermon, so I'm going to preach it anyways. So Pentecost, this may be one of my favorite Sundays. In fact, I dress up for it. I'm wearing pink. This is my Pentecost pink shirt. It's exciting. It's bold, much like this day. And it brings me into this, this sort of space of, of joy because today the Spirit has come. As George read from, from John, that Jesus, he promised his disciples a helper, an advocate, someone who would come to lead them and encourage them once Jesus had ascended into heaven. And today we note that. Today we mark the beginning of the church, really. And so it's important for us as the church, as the continuation of this Pentecost church, this church led by the Holy Spirit, to take a moment and think about what is it that made the church the church that day? What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? How did it shape the lives of that church in the first century, and how does it shape our lives today? And this is sort of a preamble to uh, a series that Hayden and I are, have been working on that we're going to lead you through over the coming weeks in talking about the Holy Spirit. And so I want to kick things off by talking about how the Holy Spirit confirms grace in our hearts, that critical, central work of Jesus in our lives. So let's start by looking at Acts chapter 2 here today to see how the church, this people of grace, receive their identity and their origin. So, Acts chapter 2 starts much the same way as our story last week started, with the choosing of the twelfth disciple. They are gathered together. Once again, we are reminded that the Holy Spirit coming, that aspects of the church, church life, community in Jesus Christ is a public thing. This is not something that is individually done or is done in secret behind closed doors. This is something for a community of people who know Jesus. And so they are gathered together. They are waiting patiently. They are listening to Jesus' words. They have gone to Jerusalem after his ascension, and they patiently wait for what is promised. They don't quite know. They don't quite understand, but they know they need to be obedient, and so they gather and it is in this moment, this gathering, where there is a sound of a rushing wind and tongues of fire that come and settle on their heads. And now for them, this would bring a very instant connection in Scripture. For this is a very Old Testament way for God to appear. Anytime we hear things such as the rushing wind or we see fire, the only thing missing is an earthquake, but we think of Mount Sinai. When God revealed himself in his presence to the people of Israel, where God made himself known through wind, through fire, to the people of Israel. 
That is the way that he chose to reveal himself for many, many days and nights as they waited in the desert and received the law, received the way in which they were supposed to live. I've also been spending a lot of time reading about eschatology, the end time for, for my master's thesis. And in a lot of apocalyptic literature in the Bible, talking about the end times, when Christ returns, there is also fire, wind, earthquakes, these sort of natural phenomenon. The earth is shaken. Things are mixed up. And in a lot of those texts, it is about God shaking out the sin and the disruption, purifying fire, removing the unwanted elements, remaining with pure gold. And the Holy Spirit heralds this sort of final day. The coming of God in his presence, this is but a small taste of what is to come. In a, in a sense, God is revealing himself in a more reserved way, but it is nonetheless dynamic. And it is also important to note that then this fire that was once situated solely on Mount Sinai, this presence of God in his spirit, in which Moses commanded the people to set up a perimeter around the mountain because if anyone would touch the mountain, they would die. Only Moses could go up. Only Moses could go then into the Holy of Holies once they built the tabernacle. Only Moses could go and meet with God. Now the fire is over everyone. And they're not dead. And it's not just the apostles that receive this anointing of fire and anointing of the Spirit. It is everyone in that room. God's presence, no longer confined to a single mountain or a single room in a temple, it is now spread out over all those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's exciting. It's for everyone. And once they step out into the square into the city of Jerusalem, in which all these people from all across the Roman Empire and outside of it have gathered, they begin to speak. And they begin to speak in the languages of those who might understand them. It's not just that the Spirit translated in the hearts of the Parthians and the Romans and those from Mesopotamia, Cappadocia. No, they heard God speak to them through the apostles and through those disciples in their own language. The gospel now belongs to every tongue and tribe. We see the beginning here of this church as being multinational, multi-ethnic, multilingual. No single society or culture has a monopoly on the gospel message anymore. As much as being in seminary, they want us to learn the Greek and the Hebrew that is essential for good Bible study, good exegesis and hermeneutics and all those great biblical study words. But by the coming of the Spirit, God wants us to know his words in our own native and mother tongue. English is just great. So are all languages. And so the church begins to take this multi-ethnic, multinational everyone character to it. The Spirit does not discriminate. It does not set a checkpoint for understanding. It comes on all. When Peter gets up and addresses the crowd, he quotes from the prophet Joel, which we read in our call to worship, this invitation. 
In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. For not only does the Spirit not care about ethnic and national divisions, not care about linguistic differences, the Spirit can certainly work and overcome that. It doesn't care about gender either. The Spirit falls on men and women alike. It doesn't care about age, young, old, somewhere in between. Everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a responsibility to listen and to speak. Everyone gets a dose of the Holy Spirit. Everyone has the opportunity to participate equally in this new church. And upon hearing this great message, upon hearing the gospel said in their own tongues and hearing the sermon of Peter, I want to jump now to verse 37. For when the people, that crowd that had gathered, had heard this good news... When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They hear the message. And by the Spirit, they are convinced that it is true. And they want to know what they do next. If it is true that this Jesus has died for your sins and been resurrected and has ascended to heaven, how do we respond to something so amazing? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So what should we do? Repent, believe, be baptized. This is where the church is born. This is where we understand what it means to be a community of believers. We might be tempted to look back even one chapter earlier in Acts 1 and look at the choosing of the twelfth apostle. Right? You had the leaders of the church. You had done in community. They, they talked about the qualifications for being an apostle, of, of witness and who to listen to. And you might think, hey, that seems to be when they start to be the church. We might even look ahead a little bit into the book of Acts and see the appointment of deacons. Or in Paul's letters, he, he encourages Titus and Timothy to appoint elders in the church and gives qualifications. And we might begin to think that the church is based on these structures, on having elders and deacons and ministers and congregants. Maybe it's having a building, a place to worship, really good liturgy. We might begin to think that church is defined by its structure, or perhaps even by the very fact that we meet together, for that has certainly been a sore and sensitive topic over the past 14 months. Many wonder, how can we be the church if we cannot meet together in our building? But it, it's not about the structure. The church, the community of believers, brothers and sisters, you and I are not the church because of these walls not because of our liturgy, not because of the very fact that we call ourselves a church. The church is an event. 
It is a happening that is instituted by the Holy Spirit. But there are a few things that mark it, that set it aside from just a simple gathering of people. Because, of course, though we are the church, every time we as brothers and sisters get together for dinner, for, you know, a game of of pond hockey, that is not necessarily church in the then formal sense as we might come to know. We are certainly a community living together, but church happens a little bit more specifically than just a gathering. For we often define the church by the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. These two things that happen are sort of when we come to church. And why can we perhaps narrow it down to these two items? Because they are full of the Spirit. At least they should be. Because without them, they're just empty and vain. And these two items, these two activities, give us our identity, more so than anything else we might think of as the church. So last week, we talked about who you should listen to and highlighted that Scripture is so important. That Scripture, this God-breathed book, this preservation of the story, is essential for knowing Jesus and knowing truth. And so the preaching of the word is a spirit-driven activity. But I want to focus on the sacraments today. I want to focus on our two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I was talking with Hayden this week then about the sacraments, and he, he let me know about a wonderful project, a journey that your church has been on to understand the sacraments and, and how it culminates in these beautiful beautiful items that Sandra has created. I mean, Sandra, wow. And so, these sacraments are important. And so I'm excited to to be a part of even just a little bit of this learning for you. So what role do these sacraments play? What role does baptism and the Lord's Supper, this communion, this holy meal play in our identity as the church? Why is it that we could not call ourselves the church if we did not participate in them as a community? And I think we have an extra opportunity here to reflect on how they work because we're actually not together. So we have to reflect on how the sacraments join us together outside of these walls, outside of our traditional church structure, and why we can participate in our homes via the internet and still consider ourselves to be doing church to be being community. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 66, tells us that the sacraments serve as a seal of a promise to let us know what God has in store for us, to confirm it in our hearts. Peter, in his response to the crowd, when he talks and says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He follows that up with that verse 39 where he says, The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all on whom the Lord our God will call. This promise, this promise of forgiveness 
This promise of the Holy Spirit, this promise of life eternal is sealed in our hearts by our participation in the sacraments. The Catechism continues in question and answer 67 to tell us that is to focus us on the cross and confirm our salvation. So we see right away that the sacraments, based on the teachings from the apostles, from Paul, it is about making this forgiveness known, about turning our eyes to Jesus. In our time of confession and assurance, we did take a moment to focus on baptism. Repent, believe, and be baptized was the first move. For the sacrament of baptism is our initiation into community. It is the way in which we mark that we belong to the church, to the body of Jesus Christ. It is recognition of God's saving action that we are cleansed from sin. We are renewed Our old selves, as Paul has put it, have died, and we have been raised to new life with Christ. I did one of my first internships at a a Baptist church in Burlington, and and the pastor there, during one of the baptisms, he, he remarked, and they do a full immersion. And he remarked that, you know, it's, it's not his style, but some of the old Baptist ministers, they would, they would hold you down in the water just long enough that you felt like you were going to have to start gasping for air, just so you felt that you were just at the point where you thought you might die under this water before bringing you up to new life. It's that imagery of that full immersion baptism of dying to your old self and to be raised up to new life, and to take that first (gasps) breath as someone who has been cleansed from all their sins. For us here in the Reformed Church, we baptize infants, and we do it so through sprinkling, which is also a wonderful practice. And we we baptize in faith, because we recognize that the Holy Spirit is the primary actor in coming to faith. It is not our choice, in a sense. We certainly do have the opportunity and the choice to live into this call in our lives, but the Holy Spirit is the one that promotes that living in our hearts. For just like the people on this first Pentecost, they heard the message, and the Holy Spirit moved them in their hearts to ask what to do. It moved them into community. And we continually engage with this baptism. We continually engage with this moment of cleansing of our sins, of new life through confession and repentance. Because, of course, we cannot be baptized again and again and again every time we sin. We are baptized once because Christ died once for us all. And we are living in new life, and repentance is a way of continually engaging with our baptism, remembering and believing that we have been cleansed of our sins, so that when we come to God and confess, we do it with the knowledge that grace has already been received and placed on our lives. This grace comes to us before we even recognize it, that as infants, who are incapable of doing anything good, anything that could possibly count as merit towards salvation, the Holy Spirit is on our children and continues to work through us and leads us into further belief, further repentance, and further assurance. 
And then we come to the table. Communion, the Lord's Supper, this institution of the church. This visible, tangible reminder of Jesus' death. Which Christ gave us on the night he was betrayed. Do this in remembrance of me. And I'm so glad we get to come to the table today. On this day that we reflect on the coming of the Holy Spirit. For continuing to, to learn through the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 76 says that through the Holy Spirit, who lives in both Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we live and we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are by one soul. I love that they pick up on the teaching of Paul in the Catechism, that we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. It reminds us of what Adam said when God created Eve from that rib in his side, that she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. We will call her woman because she was taken from man. In this way, Adam is reflecting on the origin of Eve, from whence she comes. And by participating in the Lord's Supper, we are joined then with Christ. We are then flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Christ, he is our then origin. He is the one who gives us life, the source of all that is good in our lives and sustaining us. We belong to him in that sense and participate in all that he is. And we know this by virtue of the Spirit in our lives and its presence at this table. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that when we sit down and we take the bread and we take the cup, the Holy Spirit prompts us to look back and reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus. And as we take this meal together, confirms the grace in our hearts that his sacrifice was paid once and for all. For every time we take this meal together, we are reminded that we don't have to bring sacrifices anymore, that we do not have to suffer the penalty of death because Christ paid it all. And then the Holy Spirit, confirming this grace in our hearts, reminds us of that promise continually that promise of forgiveness, that promise of life eternal. And it is in these moments, these moments of baptism, these moments at the table, when we are perhaps most fully able to demonstrate what it means to be the church, a spirit-created community, bound by the sharing of Jesus' sacrifice, not the building, not the liturgy, not even our gathering together can supersede these things. For these things are, of course, the visible structure of the church. But without the Spirit, we are just a society. And so when we come and share in these sacraments, we participate in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we become a community governed by grace, reminded that it is not our work, but the work that Christ has already done that allows us to come together and say, Jesus is Lord. And so we come to the table this morning. 
We come to the table to affirm our identity, to affirm ourselves as the people of God, finding the origin of all of our life in Jesus Christ, made known to us by the Holy Spirit. So as we come to the table, as we prepare to take this sacred meal, I would ask that each of you in your hearts creates time and space for the Holy Spirit to, through the sacrament, remind you of God's promise of forgiveness, because God will keep it. This promise of unearned grace, that as infants we were baptized as ones who could not do anything to save ourselves, and at this table, that it was Christ who did it all. This is who we are. And this is how we know who we are, a people confirmed by grace. And as we prepare for the table, I'd like to invite you to join me in a prayer. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful for your work in our lives. God Almighty, We are sorry for the ways in which we ignore your Spirit's work in our lives, that we sometimes relegate the Spirit to the, the quiet partner of the Trinity, the one who is silent and just maybe perhaps nudging us. But God, speak loudly. This morning, may your Spirit fall on us heavily as we come to the table and as we participate in this meal as brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you shout, Grace, you are saved by my work and mine alone. And God Almighty, may it be that then the grace that we receive today, may that be the outflow of our lives. Allow us to participate in the mission of Jesus as he read from that scroll in Isaiah O saw long ago at the beginning of his ministry that the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God Almighty, as we come to the table and we seek confirmation of this grace, as we leave the table full of confidence in your promise, may we go out into the world to proclaim freedom to the oppressed and salvation to all those who would believe. Amen.